Let's go. After Jesus was baptized, he went straight out into the desert. Now, that might seem like an odd place to go because, as you know, deserts are very hot and there isn't any food or water or places to stay. But Jesus needed to get away by himself and be somewhere quiet and lonely. He needed to be with his heavenly Father to get ready for his new life. In the desert, Jesus thought about the secret rescue plan he had made with God. Before the foundation of the world, they both knew what would have to happen. To rescue God's children, Jesus would have to die. There was no other way. It was the reason he had come. Now, that old enemy, the one who had spoken through the snake to Adam and Eve back in the garden, hmm? remember him? He didn't want Jesus to rescue God's people. So he lied to Jesus. Are you really God's own son? He whispered. Poor you. God must not love you. You don't need to die. Do it my way. Yes, and no, Jesus said to the liar. I will do what God says. And from that moment on, nothing would ever be the same. Jesus wasn't like Adam. Oh, Jesus was a new kind of man. He would not believe the terrible lie that the enemy spoke. Jesus knew God loved him, and he would trust God no matter what. It was just as God had promised to Adam and Eve all those years before. Jesus had come to do battle against the snake's work. He would get rid of the sin and the darkness and the tears, and he would suffer, but he would win. Jesus left the desert and set about the great rescue. He was going to get God's people back. But first, he needed to find some helpers and friends. He had a lot to do. He would need some people to help him. Who would make good helpers, do you think? Clever ones? Rich ones? Strong, important ones? Some people might think so, but I'm sure by now you don't need me to tell you they'd be wrong because the people God uses don't have to know a lot of things or have a lot of things. They just have to need him a lot. One day, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee when he saw some brothers and friends mending their nets. They were poor fishermen. Jesus called out to them, Let's go! Peter Andrew, James, and John looked up at this man on the shore. And they couldn't explain it. Their boats needed to be put away, their nets needed mending, fish were still wriggling on the shore. But something about this stranger made them just drop their nets and their fish, leave their boats and everything, and follow him. This God-man was like no one they had ever met. When they looked at Jesus, their hearts filled up with a wonderful, forever sort of happiness, and inside it was as if they were running free in an open field. Jesus asked twelve men to be his helpers, Peter, Andrew, James and John, Matthew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, another James, Simon, Thaddeus and Judas. 
meeting Jesus would change all of them forever. Well, good morning. Nice and warm in here, are you? Glad you're uh, joining with us here. And if you're all watching online, uh, good morning to you and down in F3 as, as well. Typically here at Fellowship Bible Church, if you're a guest with us, we work our way through a book of the Bible. But um, over the next few months, we are looking at the Jesus storybook and the stories about uh, the life of Christ. And um, so we're kind of working our way through that. Uh, over the last two and a half years, uh, we've had uh, a guy on our staff, uh, John Van Junen. I hope you've had an opportunity over the last couple of years to meet uh, John Van Drunen. John is a man of uh, many talents. He's a lawyer. He's a CPA. And uh, in spite of the brains, uh, he decided to work and uh, be with us on staff. But a little known fact about John and his wife, Lauren, is that uh, they are certified scuba uh, divers. Certified scuba divers. Um, now, if you've ever gotten out on a boat, out on the ocean, uh, donned on some snorkeling equipment or diving equipment, and uh, say down in the Caribbean and, and you plunge into the water, you realize that below the surface of the water, there's a whole unseen world down there, a whole unseen realm. It's real. We don't get connected with it. Uh, but we just uh, never get acquainted with it because it's an unseen realm. Now, there's another unseen realm that uh, escapes our notice typically as well. It's the spiritual unseen realm. A whole real world, but it's unseen in the spiritual area. Um, last month over the Christmas season, we were reminded of the unseen realm. The angel Gabriel leaves the heavenly realm, comes down to the earthly realm, and announces the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. That's Luke chapter 1. Or Luke chapter 2, the, the um, heavenly choir of angels uh, left their heavenly realm, the unseen realm, and came to the earthly realm and announced uh, good news of great joy to the shepherds. Or a couple of weeks ago, at the, when Don Den Hartog was here, on the sermon of, uh, of the baptism of Jesus. The heavens open, and the dove, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, ascended. And uh, the unseen realm, uh, for just a brief moment, was seen as God says, uh, you are my beloved son. Uh, it's real, that angelic realm. Uh, but as we know from scriptures, there's also the, the dark realm the demonic realm of uh, the fallen angels uh, doing the bidding of their leader, Satan. Now this morning, we want to look at a passage that is, um, brings us face to face with that unseen realm. Very real, but so oftentimes we are unacquainted with it. Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 uh, this morning, this cosmic war that impacts us all. And it's the story of the temptation of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says this. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, 
he became hungry. Um, let's, let's not forget what is at stake here. Um, the, the, the announcement that Gabriel had said to Mary um, that her child would, it says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. There was the coming one, the, the Messiah. He's coming. Zechariah the, the priest prophesied that God would give his people a knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Something was about to dawn on this world. Salvation was coming. The angels said to the shepherds, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is uh, dedicated in the temple, and Simeon says, My eyes have seen thy salvation, the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And again, John the Baptist came on the scene and announced the Messiah's coming. All flesh shall see the salvation of God's. This was the beginning of this redemptive program. God had planned this from eternity past, that he would send his son into the world. And now God's redemptive plan is in full swing. And uh, you couldn't have missed it at the baptism of Jesus when that dove descended upon Jesus and the voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Make no mistake, God's plan was now in full swing. And of course, it wasn't lost on Satan. And if Satan was ever going to prohibit God from accomplishing this redemptive work, this was the time. This was the time to seize the opportunity, and it was a great opportunity. Chapter 4, verse 1 there of Luke says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. The wilderness is a, is a concept in the Bible that uh, speaks of, of the absence of life, of death, of darkness. In fact, biblical writers view it as Satan's domain. There are ominous um, intentions with that idea, with that word wilderness. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the, the realm of death, as it were. Satan's domain. Demonic forces are arrayed in the wilderness. Um, this is Satan's turf. He couldn't have asked for anything better. Second of all, we see from these first two verses, is that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. In his humanness, he is in the most weakened condition that he would be in until he was hanging on the cross and dying. Um, the scene was set. The wilderness was Satan's turf. Jesus was vulnerable in his humanity, in his hunger. Um, and Satan now was ready to use his heaviest weapons to derail God's program before it ever got off the ground. Before Jesus ever would speak a parable, before Jesus would ever perform a miracle, before he ever... Uh, taught to the crowds and before I ever called a disciple 
Here was Satan's opportunity to derail God's program before it ever got off the ground. He's ready to go to stop God. By the way, make no mistake, uh, this idea of, of 40 days, that, that number 40 implies something of great, great significance. You look at the scriptures and you read things like the great flood in Genesis that lasted 40 days. Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Moses was ready for service, spending 40 years in the wilderness. He stayed on Mount Sinai 40 days and nights and received the law. Elijah spent 40 days and nights on Mount Horeb after defeating Baal. Um, all, all throughout, Goliath, 40 days, uh, terrorizes Israel. Well, here Satan begins his attack. Jesus has been 40 days and nights. He's hungry, and he's on Satan's domain, on Satan's turf. Now, Satan begins his attacks, and Luke records there's three of them, and it's interesting, that's, that's the only attacks that Satan could ever come up with. There are, are three, um, three channels, three gates, three passageways in which Satan can enter the citadel of a man's life. John records it in 1 John chapter 2, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, they're not from the Father. These are the three uh, strategies that Satan is going to use. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life. Um, look at the first attack. The lust of the flesh. Verse 3. And the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, I mean, realistically, that, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, we in our flesh have real needs, the body has real needs. Jesus had been without food for 40 days. It's a perfectly logical suggestion. Um, there's a stone, if you are the Son of God. And by the way, Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 4, the last verse in chapter 3 is the announcement of the Father, you are my beloved Son. And now Satan uses that and says, well, if you are the beloved son I mean you're hungry take that stone and turn it into bread use your power as a son of God meet your human need it's real no one is going to look down upon you you're hungry if you're the son of God then tell the stone to become bread you deserve better than hunger go ahead Jesus Solve your, your human problem. Solve your hunger. You can do it if you're the Son of God. Jesus answers there in verse 4, and he says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. We won't take the time to turn back there, but... Um, God is reminding the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8, look, you... 
for 40 years you were wandering in the wilderness. You grumbled about not having food, and, and I provided the manna from heaven. And God had graciously provided that, that angel food that would come and every morning and they could collect it and eat it. God provided the necessary nutrition. And they ate and were satisfied day after day after day. But it came from, from God. It was God's provision. They had a need, and God provided for that need. Jesus is quoting from that passage, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. I think what Jesus is saying is life does not consist of, of just having our human needs met. Life is more than just having enough food and, and shelter and a good job and an education and it's more than just the one with the most toys wins at the end of the gate at the end of the day life is more than bread alone god was emphasizing to israel that he could provide for them that true life was in a relationship with him and they could trust him for everything that was necessary for life. And so Jesus is being tempted by Satan to solve his human need, the lust of the flesh. You, you're hungry, you need this. It's legitimate. Go ahead, take charge. If you're the son of God, you can take that stone and it could become bread and you can solve your fleshly need. And Jesus said, oh, there's more to life than taking care of my fleshly needs. Jesus would later explain it this way in Luke chapter 9, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose or to forfeit himself? Later in chapter 12, he would say, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Not even when one has an abundance is real life defined by our fleshly needs being taken care of. There's something far more important, says Jesus, than bread alone. And the rest of that verse in Deuteronomy goes and says, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is expressing his dependency upon God. God will provide just like he provided for the children of Israel after 40 years, during the 40 years of wandering. God will provide my needs. Jesus is saying, my focus is on him. I don't have to take care of my fleshly needs. He will provide for me as I trust him. He did it to Israel in the past. Don't tempt me into taking my own, um, using my own power to accomplish, fill my own needs by my own ways. I'm going to trust my Father. Great is his faithfulness, as the old hymn says, and all I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. The second attack focuses on the lust of the eye. The lust of the eye. Verse 5, And they led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. 
Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Uh, the lust of the eyes. It's written in the original language in a very emphatic way. Verse 6 says, To you I can give this, because to me it has been given. To you I will give it, because to me it has been given. And the great deceiver, Satan, was not necessarily deceiving in this sense. All the kingdoms of the world had been given to him. He was the ruler of the world. God has allowed Satan a, 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 a certain level of sovereignty over the, the nations of the world. The whole world lies in the grip of the evil one, we're told in the Scriptures. And he's saying, I will give it all to you, the lust of the eye. Look at all of this. I'll give it to you because to me it has been given. And Jesus counters in verse 8 and he says, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And again, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 this time. And again, we won't go back there, but in that passage, God is reminding the Israelites, when you come into the land of promise that I'm taking you to, that I'm going to give you, and when um, you build your big houses and you harvest your wonderful crops, and uh, you make uh, great wealth for yourself, don't forget that it's me that is providing all this for you. God is sovereign over all. God, who has allowed Satan a measure of control, is ultimately the sovereign over all. And Jesus is saying, Satan, even you are to worship the Lord your God. Because the giver is always greater than the one who receives. The lust of the eye. I can give this all to you. And Jesus says, do not tempt me. We worship the giver and only the giver. One other thought I think Jesus knew full well that one day the Father was going to give him all these kingdoms anyway. It says in uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, the Father says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. No need to bow before Satan because Jesus knew full well he was going to get all those kingdoms one day from the Father anyway. And then the third attack. The pride of life. Verse 9, he led him to Jerusalem and him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And now, now Satan uses Jesus' own tactics. He quotes scripture. It is written from Psalm 91 that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The boastful pride of life. Here's your opportunity, Jesus. You're beginning your ministry. You've lived in obscurity for 30 years. Now you're going to present yourself. What better way to do that than to go to Jerusalem, go to the pinnacle of the temple, the Messiah, throw yourself down, and entrust your life to the Father who will bear you up lest you strike your foot. 
why the world would stand in awe. This is your time. This is your opportunity. And Jesus said in verse 12, it is written, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The bottom line is, I don't need you, Satan. I don't need you to puff myself up. It's not about me. It's about my Father. For Jesus, the bottom line was his dependence upon the Father's will, upon the Father's timing. All in good time, I will trust my Father. Jesus was to trust the Father, not to test him. And verse 13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until a more opportune time. And he wasn't finished yet, but in essence, he was finished. Satan was met on his own turf and was defeated. He threw everything he had at Jesus, and Jesus walked away the victor. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, and Jesus was triumphant. Hey, you've got to give Satan credit. It worked before one time in a perfect setting of the Garden of Eden, right? You take of that fruit, did God say you shouldn't eat of that fruit? Well, he knows on the day you eat of it, he'll be like, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And Adam and Eve saw it, says that the, the fruit was good to taste, to eat. It was good food, the lust of the flesh. They saw that it was a delight to the eyes. They saw that it would make them wise, the boastful pride of life. And the world was plunged into the destruction and the chaos of sin. Oh, it had worked quite well previously in the first Adam. But the second Adam, Satan met his match. What was his strategy, this second Adam? What was Jesus' strategy for success? Well, quite simply, he was fully aware of Satan's schemes. He knew what Satan was trying to do, to move him away from being focused from his father to be focused on himself. Satan always uses that scheme. Anything he can do to get us focused off of God and onto us and ourselves that we can solve our issues, then he will be successful. He was fully aware of Satan's schemes. He was fully aware of God's truth. It is written, it is written, it is written. And I find it interesting that Jesus used the book of Deuteronomy. It's been a while since I've read through the book of Deuteronomy. But Jesus was so familiar with the scriptures, he used the book of Deuteronomy to combat Satan and his lies. And thirdly, he was fully aware of who was his highest priority in life. Jesus never lost sight of the fact that it was his father. And Satan could never move Jesus off that central focus of his heart, of his life. And instead of acting independently of his father, instead of trusting himself, instead of taking care of his own needs and his own issues, he kept entrusting himself to his father. 
Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he talks about Jesus and his suffering and how he was reviled, but he never reviled in return, but he kept entrusting himself to his Father. But let me bring this down home to us. You see, make no mistake, we are living in the wilderness today. Everything about this world is, is the wilderness. It's Satan's domain. We're reminded of this over and over and over again in the Scriptures. The ruler of this world is Satan. And this is his domain for a time. And the evidence of the wilderness is found in every area and aspect of life. The stench of the wilderness death is everywhere. It's in politics, it's in religion, it's economics, it's in relationships. There's nothing that has not been impacted by the wilderness. We live in a wilderness. A job might be expressed in the, in the wilderness. Your marriage might have the touch of the wilderness in it. It's like a poisonous gas that, that infiltrates every corner, every crevice of existence. We are living in the wilderness. And maybe it's more intangible things like the thorns and the, the brambles of a, of, a, of a fear, the fear of growing older, the fear of disease, the fear of, of death. Maybe it's the wasteland wilderness of discouragement, of despair, of, of anxiety, of loneliness. We are living in the wilderness. And there is nothing right about the wilderness. It's a mess. And the God of this world, the God of the wilderness, is actively enticing every one of us to remedy the problems of wilderness life by our own efforts and our own clever designs. What can we do to rectify the, the pain of this world? What do we do to solve the dilemma of the wilderness living? What can we do apart from God? That is always Satan's tactics. How do we live in this wilderness? Well, we can become very clever in trying to figure it out apart from God, to live independently of Him, to pursue physical needs apart from trusting Him to provide, to go after life with all its gusto, thinking that bread alone is where life is found, to gratify ourselves while ignoring God, to to worship self, set God aside and say, I think I can handle life. I'll take it from here, God. To live for the acclaim of others, the self-glory, to survive life in the wilderness through our cleverness. Satan is always attempting to move us from a God-focused life to a self-focused life. That is his modus operandi. That's his tactics. It's what he threw at Adam and Eve and won. It's what he threw at Jesus and lost. And that's the encouragement in this story. 
See, in this wilderness existence in which we live, we are not alone. We have a champion. We have the one who triumphed in the wilderness. The one who met Satan head on. And everything that he offered him, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, and he came out victorious. He entered the wilderness into Satan's domain, weakened in his humanness, vulnerable to in his humanity, and Jesus came out the victor. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, the smartest thing we could ever do living in this wilderness, in the stench of this sin-sick world, is to walk in harmony and in fellowship and communion with the triumphant victor, Jesus. Folks, um, new year has begun, 2022. New challenges, new... Um, opportunities to seize control and make, um, make this coming year something grand for ourselves. But if we do it apart from uh, our, our relationship with Jesus, we will experience nothing but a wilderness wandering. Life is not about what we can amass, what we can solve, what we can do to better ourselves. Life is always about Him and a relationship with Him. And He was the victor, and to the degree that we walk in faith in Him, to the degree that we are growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the degree that we are enjoying our communion with Him, then we too can experience victory in the wilderness. No matter what the wilderness is we may face, the encouragement is that Jesus has been there and He's come out victorious and He's inviting us, now follow me, trust me. Like He trusted the Father and put complete focus upon him. He's inviting us to do the same. Any adjustments that have to be made as we have begun this new year? Any adjustments in our perspective of life, our walk with Jesus, our intimacy and communion with him? It's a great time to begin to reconnect with a triumphant victor who met Satan on his own turf in the wilderness and came out the champion. Would you bow your head, please? Father, um, we are so prone to solve our issues in our own efforts. We are so prone to figure out life. And we can become so trusting of our own cleverness when it's so oftentimes this 
little voice that is <laughs> perched on our shoulders, so to speak, and whispering in our ear, turn that stone into bread. Solve this issue. You can do it. If you want the acclaim of others, then seize life. Go for it. Real life is what you can amass, what you can gain out of your hard work, your cleverness. And Father, it's so easy to get off focus and forget that we're called to worship you only. That true life isn't about what we have, it's who has us. May you stir within us, Father, a greater hunger, a desire to pursue you, to focus upon you, and to realize that's where life begins and ends. That's what it's all about in a relationship with you. Father, if there's someone here today or someone who's listening online who has never put their trust in you, has never come to that point to, to understand and to realize that you have provided a free gift for the payment of our sins. Father, you provided your son to, to die on the cross and shed his blood. that he rose again on the third day and he offers this free gift of eternal life to all who will put their trust in him. That it's not about what we do or how we perform. That's a lie again of Satan. It's all about entrusting ourselves to you. You did all the work, Jesus, and you offer that free gift to anyone who will receive it by faith. May you open a heart today, Father, to begin that that journey of love, a relationship with you. For your glory, Father, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.